Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Dwayne Meadows, marine biologist and season diver, had spent Christmas Day of 2004 in the world-renowned Similan Islands Marine National Park in Southwest Island. He had made plans to go on a snorkeling trip with a friend. Right after breakfast, he went to his bungalow to start gathering his snorkeling gear when a scream shattered the morning air. He turned to see the harbor emptying and a thick white line of foam on the horizon racing towards him. He saw the boats bobbing wildly in Kalak Bay. He immediately recognized the signs of a tsunami, but was one of the very few people who did so. This is his story, and the stories of two other survivors of this deadly tsunami. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Our story takes place in Kalak, Thailand. Kalak was essentially erased by the 2004 tsunami, but the town and the tourist industry it relies on has rebounded. It remains quieter than the other coastal destinations, offering secluded beaches, tranquil nights, and family-oriented activities. If you like unparalleled scuba diving, you've hit the jackpot. Diving is what brought our first survivor to the area. Dwayne Meadows had made plans for snorkeling trips to explore local fan coral. He woke up, went to breakfast, and had just started collecting his diving gear when he heard the sound of screaming. Seconds later, a wave of water blew through the door. When it hit, it knocked down one of the bungalow walls. Meadows saw his chance to escape and jumped through a hole into the water as it rushed by. He didn't want to be pinned underwater in his room. The waves spun him, somersaulting his body and nearly ripping his arms and legs off. Debris mixed with the water, tore at him nonstop, and after what felt like an eternity, he stopped spinning long enough to start swimming. He didn't know which way was up, though. He swam in the direction he thought it might be. He couldn't find it and began to panic, which burned even more oxygen. It was at this point he began to mentally say farewell to his loved ones. He had determined he was going to die. Instead, he popped up to the surface. He breathed in so deeply that he began to gag. He spun around looking for something to grab onto and to get his bearings. A foam spaghetti noodle from a swimming pool floated by and he grabbed a hold of it. He tumbled along with the noodle, feeling as though he was being dragged through the white water rapids. He was trained as a lifeguard, and he knew not to struggle. He let the current pull him along. The water pulled him away from the resort and back from the ocean, towards a forest. Meadows tried his best to protect his face from the tree branches ripping at his body as he was passing. He was repeatedly hit by branches and even entire trees that had been ripped loose by the current. He was also floating through debris from buildings that had exposed nails and worse. 
he was pushed back hard into a tree trunk, spraining his back, knee, hip, and ankle, and he lost the noodle. At this point, he felt as if the wave was starting to slow. He saw another large piece of plastic floating ahead of him. It was the bottom half of a mannequin. He threw his arms around it, desperate to stay afloat. He began to swim and was looking for places he might recognize, when suddenly he saw rocks out on the shoreline. The receding wave had somehow pulled him a quarter of a mile back out towards sea into the deeper waters of the bay. He had to beat the next wave, so he swam as hard as he could back towards the beach. He held the mannequin as he dodged debris. He saw cars and even entire buildings being pulled out to sea. He saw a Thai woman holding onto a piece of roofing and crying that she couldn't swim. Meadows held out the mannequin, asking her to grab it before the next wave hit. He pulled her arm and pleaded with her to try to share it and get back to shore. She was in shock and refused, so Meadows had to give up in order to save himself. He said it's the most painful memory of the entire tragedy. He swam as quickly as he could towards the rocks and noticed that entire sections of mussels had been ripped up from the stone. He saw colonies of them still stuck to the rock, but they were four feet above where the water currently was. These mussels could only live where the waves washed over them, and that meant that the tsunami must have pulled a lot of water back from the beach, which also meant that an even bigger wave was coming. In severe pain and mental anguish, Meadows swam past several bodies and tried to calculate his odds for being able to survive the second wave. He finally was able to reach the shore and ran up onto the beach where he saw four European women who were injured but alive. This helped snap him out of his sadness and together they helped each other to higher ground. They ran for the hills and finally had a bit of luck. The second wave came in slower than the first. They were able to see the water surging forward, and it stopped only a dozen feet from them. They kept walking up and up and up. Meadows and the women were able to find a road that circled up the hill behind Cow Lock. The hill was now surrounded on all sides by water, mud, and debris. He was hobbling from his injuries, and the women had lost their shoes. Meadows had happened to hang on to one of his sandals, which he used as best he could to create a path to protect the women from debris and glass that littered the road. Thai people from the few hillside shops that weren't destroyed brought out water and emergency supplies. They offered them to the people who were walking along the road or collapsing by its side. A man from a dive shop led them to an unfinished resort on the hilltop. There was a makeshift shelter there. Some people were hysterical, while others were catatonic. Blank faces of children tore at Meadows' emotions because he had a seven-year-old at home in Hawaii. Many people were naked as their clothes had been torn away by the force of the water and the wreckage as the wave hurled forward. People covered in blood from their own wounds were trying to help others, both loved ones and strangers. About 1,500 traumatized people from several different nationalities made their way to the resort. Meadows had counted over 120 cuts and gouges on his body in addition to the strains and a back injury that would require cortisone shots for years.
His first aid training kicked in, as there were people around him with much worse injuries than his. There were broken ribs, open wounds, bleeding heads, and worse. He gathered pens and paper and sent volunteers to collect names and post them to help family members find survivors. A crying woman with a head wound pleaded for him to help her son, who was having trouble breathing. Meadows rushed to where he lay close by. The boy was about 10 years old and his name was Paul. Paul had the bluest face and lips Meadows had ever seen. He had a wound on his chest and he was trying desperately to draw breath. Meadows recognized the signs of a sucking chest wound and removed the bandage to reveal a two-inch hole that went through the entire chest cavity. It had punctured the lung cavity, causing a vacuum that requires the lungs to expand and contract, to break. Acting quickly, Meadows yelled to the man from the dive shop to bring him a tube of silicone gel that divers use to seal their cameras and flashlights. Paul struggled and then relaxed as if lapsing into a coma or going unconscious. When the man returned with the gel, Meadows smeared it around the wound and pressed it to the boy's chest and holding it there until he heard a sudden rush of air enter his lungs. He then turned to help the relieved mother and start bandaging her head. Throughout the evening, more survivors made it to the resort. Available supplies to help these injured people was almost laughable. Mostly, there were tin first aid kits gathered from homes and businesses. Volunteer translators with multiple language capabilities followed him as he made his rounds. Luckily, as the evening progressed, other medicinally trained tourists arrived. There were two German nurses and a Serbian doctor who had seen and treated much worse injuries than these during his country's civil wars. They became close friends with Meadows after that day. They realized around midnight that they absolutely needed more medicinal help. Several people with diabetes and heart diseases needed medications to survive through the following day. They decided to seek assistance from a small hospital 15 miles away. People found a motorcycle on the ground of the resort. Meadows took it and headed south towards the hospital. It was a very difficult trip, as the road had been destroyed in many places. Meadows struggled to add control to his rage when people were demanding bribes to get past. It was just the tip of the crime iceberg. Thieves, rapists, kidnappers, and hoaxers preyed on the tsunami survivors and families of victims in refugee camps, hospitals, and even in the home countries of European tourists hit by the wave. Reports and warnings came in from as far apart as Britain, Sweden, Sri Lanka, Thailand, and Hong Kong of criminals taking advantage of the chaos to rape survivors or plunder the homes of European tourists reported missing. In stark contrast to a worldwide outpouring of humanitarian aid, a women's collective media group said, we have received reports of incidents of rape, gang rape, molestation, and physical abuse of women and girls in the course of unsupervised rescue operations and while residents in temporary shelters. Save the Children warned that young children orphaned by the tsunami wave were vulnerable to sexual exploitation. In Thailand, 
Thieves disguised as police and rescue workers have looted luggage and hotel safes around the Kaulak beach, where the tsunami killed up to 3,000 people. Sweden sent seven police officers there to investigate the reported kidnapping of a Swedish boy who was 12. His parents had been carried off by the wave. The United Nations also warned of the danger of pirates hindering the relief efforts off the west coast of Indonesia's Sumatra Island. That island took the brunt of the tsunami. Sweden was the hardest hit country outside of the tsunami region, with more than 2,500 missing and 52 confirmed dead, but it kept their names secrets because their belongings were targeted by thieves. These thieves would often look for personal documents in order to steal the identities of the victims. When Meadows finally arrived at the hospital, he was exhausted. His injuries and lack of food and water for the entire day kept him there while supplies were sent back to Kaulak. It was there that he began to write down his experiences. He assumed his friend Carolyn Sachs, who he was supposed to meet to dive with, had died. He felt survivor's guilt as he wrote a letter to her saying she shouldn't have been alone. Carolyn Sachs, however, managed to stay alive, similarly to how Meadows did. She was trapped near the ceiling of her hotel room by the surging wave. She searched around in the dark water and was finally able to find an opening and swim through. It was perhaps a window, but she wasn't sure. She was forced back into the forest behind the resort, just like Meadows, and then she was swept back to sea when the wave retreated. When she swam to shore, she wandered to a different makeshift shelter than the one from Meadows. She searched for him, and it took weeks to find out that he was still alive. She was able to locate him through one of the dive shops that he rented equipment from. The records remained intact after the tsunami, and they had put her in touch with him. They eventually returned to Kaulak, where they had been that fateful Christmas day. Once there, they couldn't avoid the flashbacks of the bodies that the ocean waves had left in trees or stacked in piles on the beach. Meadows revisited the spot where his bungalow had been and found himself looking obsessively for the face of the Thai woman he hadn't been able to save. He returned four times to help with restoration. He still stays in touch with Caroline and Paul, the little boy he had saved, and his family. He says the best thing that he can do is keep talking about his experience. A man named Andy Chager also made it through the Kaulak tsunami landing. He had been with his partner, Nova Mills, for almost six years. They were about seven weeks into a year-long trip during which they had planned to travel the world. They had traveled through China, Vietnam, and Cambodia, but were very excited to meet up with three friends from home in Bangkok. Catching up with them and then celebrating Christmas itself couldn't have been better. When the sun went down on Christmas Day, they all took showers and met in the restaurant of one of the guest houses they were staying at. It was a small family-run place, only 30 meters from the beach. They returned from the beach and sat drinking until the early hours of the morning, finally heading to bed around 4 a.m. They were still sleeping when the tsunami reached them. He and Nova had woken up because the room was shaking and it became more violent as they tried to figure out what was going on. Their bungalow was close to the beach but was perpendicular to the shore so they couldn't see the wave approaching. The noise he described 
as a jet engine was building up. The noise and then the shaking told them that something was very wrong. He made it to his feet and remembered seeing Nova on the other side of the bed looking scared. He said that was the last time he ever saw the woman he loved. The first wave then slammed into the bungalow. When he came to, he was in the water. He said, it sounds strange, but he can't remember being in the bungalow a few moments before. He thinks the impact must have been so powerful that he was knocked unconscious or stunned momentarily. All he knew at this point was that he was in serious trouble and he was being swept along by the most powerful current he'd ever felt. The water was full of debris. Everything you can think of turned into a thick soup. Swimming in it was like being pushed around in a giant washing machine full of nails on a spin cycle. Somehow he was pushed through a building site. As he was being swept through, one of his legs became trapped against a column. There is where he was pinned by debris. He felt excruciating pain and knew he had lost a lot of tissue and muscle in his calf. As painful as it was, it stopped him from being swept out to sea, where he would likely have been killed. He was then trapped in this building site for about four hours. He was too injured to stand or walk, even sitting up was hard. As well as the injury to his left leg, he broke his right collarbone and had been badly battered all over. He didn't understand why help wasn't coming. He had no idea how big the tsunami actually was. He said early on, other survivors wandered by, but they seemed too in shock to help. Eventually, some locals arrived and attempted to help him, but the second wave of the tsunami came, and they were forced to flee. He was trapped on a higher floor, and luckily, the second wave passed underneath him. Eventually, another group of Westerners found him and helped him to the main road. He was put into a pickup truck and never got their names or details. Over the next week, he was moved through several hospitals, eventually on to Bangkok. He had three surgical operations in Thailand to debride the infected tissue. However, the biggest pain he felt was in his heart, and it was always in relation to Nova. After seeing all the bodies in Kaolak, he was certain she had not lived. He had flown home to the UK, where he spent several weeks in the hospital and seven months doing physical therapy. All he could think about the entire time was where he was supposed to be with her on their trip around the world and what they were supposed to be doing together. He'd been very moved by seeing the devastation in Thailand, so when he was able to, he returned to Kaolak. He joined an organization and spent a year there as a volunteer. He believes that process was extremely healing. He saw local people who had lost so much more than he had. He still had a home family and money, but he saw these people who had nothing left at all. They could cope and begin to smile again. This put his own situation into perspective. His personal interest in aid work became a professional one. He returned to the UK and got a master's degree in international development with a focus in disaster recovery. So our first two survivors survived on land. Our last, named Jamie Aldridge, was 13 years old when she witnessed the same tsunami, but it was witnessed from the sea. She wrote about her experience on the plane as she returned home. She felt guilty that she could get on a plane and escape the suffering. She wrote the following. 
Me and my family were staying at a beach hut in Sri Lanka for Christmas. On Boxing Day, they had decided to go on a snorkeling trip out at sea. They woke up at 8 a.m. and got on a fishing boat at 9.10. This turned out to be very lucky timing. They sat in a small fishing boat as they kept circling the island. The fishermen explained that, unfortunately, the sea was too rough to snorkel and too dangerous. They were upset because they had really wanted to snorkel, but at the bottom of the boat there was a small glass pane that could look down into the sea. They kept looking through it, and every time they did, it was dark and sandy. They couldn't see anything. They probably thought they were being ripped off. Her Aunt Becky was very sick and wanted to get off the boat, so they asked the fishermen to take them back. The sea had become extremely rough and was swirling around as the fishermen sailed around the corner to a bay. As they got closer, three fishing boats came by shouting, Go out to sea now! There's a hundred-foot wave! At this point, they didn't have any clue what was happening, but the fishermen followed the advice. They sat in the boat at sea with her sick aunt, her mom who was worried, and her dad who was laughing about the entire thing. They sat there for two hours for what they thought was just rough sea, but when they returned to the bay, they realized that their hotel and all the hotels on the beach were destroyed. At this point, they finally realized the extent of the damage. When they neared the beach, they saw something floating in the sea. As they drew closer, they understood what they were seeing. It was a floating corpse of a baby, and next to it, an old man. Jamie was the first one off the boat and ran to where the men were pointing for them to go. They directed her up onto a ledge, Then they ran through a broken-down restaurant to a plot of land where everyone else was. They were told to run up the street and did so. Jamie was running barefoot because she had left her shoes in the hotel room. A kind, middle-aged man saw her running in bare feet and gave her his own shoes. Her parents began to run as well. Jamie didn't understand what had happened. Some locals stopped and took them inside to get them something to drink. They were sitting in the yard when more tourists and locals began to run by with horror. The second wave was coming. The people who were helping them took them to a back alley and to some trees that had ropes on them, which led up to a mountain, which is where they remained until the streets were safe. For three hours, they watched homeless, upset children and adults walk by. They all looked for shelter for the night. The following day, they went to go look at their beach hut and try to find their things. Her mother found a favorite picture and some of her clothes as well, but most of it was destroyed, or missing, or 300 yards up the road. At this point, everyone was getting emotional, crying and sad, as they looked at the damage that nature can do to civilization. Her family was reported as missing on the BBC. The report said that a British teacher and his family were on a boat which went missing. Luckily, that was not the case. Technology today warns some countries that a tsunami is about to occur, but in most places no one would know. In Kaolak, there was one tsunami warning system that became the stuff of legends, but it only saved a few lives. Eight elephants began crying that morning, right around the time the earthquake struck. Three of them became so agitated they took off for the hills with tourists on their backs. Nearby, two more elephants screamed and broke their chains, running for the hills. Skeptical minds didn't believe these reports, 
but there is scientific support for them coming from Stanford University. A researcher there showed that elephants can produce low-frequency sounds by stamping their feet and vocally. Elephants can discriminate the subtle differences in seismic signals from members of their group. They hear through their sensitive feet as well as their ears. They are seen leaning forward on their feet to listen more clearly, and they will put three feet on the ground to determine the direction of a sound wave. These elephants were alarmed twice by seismic waves from the earthquake that traveled through the earth, and then by low-frequency waves when the tsunami was moving. So when you travel and elephants start acting up, make sure you head for the hills. Thank you so much for listening. I'd especially like to thank Heather Kay for her kind words this week. She said, keep the podcast coming. I love listening while cleaning, driving, hauling wood, and doing my farm chores. I love hearing your voice, but try to forget that you're on a sailboat on beautiful blue seas while I'm wearing overalls and boots up to my knees. Thank you so much, Heather. I feel very lucky to be able to do this and to be able to record on my boat. And I apologize for the sounds of the water, but honestly, I like it. And some of you like it too and have asked to leave the wave sounds in the background. So I'm going to do that today. Maybe you guys can give me some more feedback, whether you like it better this way or not. Um, If you have enjoyed today's case, please take a moment to give a five-star rating and leave a nice comment. Or maybe share the podcast with a friend. I would really appreciate that. You can find Twisted Travel and True Crime on social media, including Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. You can also reach me by email at twistedtravelandtruecrime at gmail.com. Thanks again, and as always, I'd like to wish you fair winds and following seas. If you would like to see my resources, they are in the show description, which is also where you'll find the link to support the show monetarily, should you choose to do so. Thank you so much.